0: Amen. You may be seated. Well, please uh, open up with me in God's word now to Revelation chapter uh, 22. Uh, We come uh, finally to this last chapter of the book of Revelation, which is the last chapter of the entire Bible. Uh, Revelation 22 and verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22 and verses 1 through 5. These verses uh, continue uh, the account of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which is the glorified church of God, Uh, in that place. Uh, This is what will be established after Christ's return, uh, the general resurrection, the judgment, and then this, the eternal state of God's people in the presence of God with glorified body, fully redeemed soul uh, forever and ever. In fact, these five verses conclude the account of what this new heavens and new earth will be like Uh, Beginning next week in Revelation 22 and verse 6, down through the rest of the chapter, uh, we will have uh, concluding words uh, there of uh, the entire vision of Revelation. So let's now hear God's word, Revelation 22, uh, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, Blowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever thus far in God's word. Let's once again seek his face now in prayer. O Lord, our uh, God, uh, we thank you that those things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor has entered into the heart of man that these things which you have prepared for those who love you, you have revealed by your spirit. We know, O Lord, that it nonetheless feels like we have but just a a passing glimpse that we are given of what glory will be like. And yet it's a passing glimpse of such overwhelming splendor. And O Lord, such such a, 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 a wonderful place of Your presence. O Lord, our God, we pray that we would gaze at it today and that our hearts would be encouraged. Lord, our God, we pray that you would keep us this hour from a wandering mind and a distracted heart uh, that would turn uh, to the affairs of this world even while the glories of the next world are being presented. Lord, instead, by your Spirit, help us to fasten our attention upon this truth today that it would produce enduring fruit in our lives for your glory. We ask these things of you now. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. When you open up your Bibles to the very beginning chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and God's account of creation, uh, there is no doubt in those early chapters of Genesis that God is a God of generosity and of love. He, of His own will, created this glorious world that we inhabit. He made mankind after His own image with rationality and feelings and a will and a capacity for relationship. Relationship with the God who made us as well as relationship with our human companions. God gave mankind dominion over the rest of His creation. And He placed man in a garden, the Garden of Eden. What a kind gift that garden was. In it was, quote, every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And God Himself walked with Adam and Eve. In that garden, it was a place of innocence, abundance, life, and joy. Their home, the home of mankind, was in the paradise of God. How good our God was. But how dramatically, you know the rest of the story, do you not? How dramatically Adam and Eve fell from that original paradise. Uh, The serpent entered that garden. He tempted Eve and Adam. Our first parents engaged in that act of initial rebellion. Upon their rebellion against God, there was a curse placed upon all of creation and they were cast out of the garden, that place of fellowship with God. And the entire rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward, is the story, really, of how God redeems mankind. By sovereign grace, how we are restored to Eden. That English poet, John Milton, his books are a perfect summary of the storyline of the Bible. Paradise lost and paradise regained. And as we turn now, not to the first two chapters of the Bible, but rather to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the last book of the entire Bible, here, the final dwelling place of God's redeemed people is described. And as we look at these verses, what will our, will our dwelling be like For age upon age, world without end, what will it be like? And here we read, and the symbolism is the symbolism of Eden. (laughs) It's a symbolism of God fully and finally restoring His people to that place from which they once were cast out. It's the announcement that God's original created purpose has not been thwarted by Satan's rebellion or by sin. But rather that He has brought His people into this perfect creation once again. But with this, that the new creation is even better than what Eden once was. Well, how can we say that? How is this new creation into which we will be brought even better than that place from which Adam and Eve fell. Well, we would say this, that first of all, Christ is there as the resurrected God-man and the victorious Savior. The one crowned with many diadems. And we are co-heirs of this new creation with Him. Well, another way that it's better is that Satan cannot enter this place and we will no longer be tempted. We will no longer be under a test. There will be no serpent. And you and I will, unlike Adam and Eve, be secure forever in perfect holiness, unable to sin any longer. But it is also better in that Eden Will then be coextensive with the whole new creation. All of it is Eden. And also, we will never lose this paradise again. There is no fear that we will be cast out as Adam and Eve once were, the, the way barred of, of entry again, but rather because of. The redeeming work of Jesus Christ, this land, will be our dwelling place for all eternity. It's a glorious promise. What an ending to this story. What a future is ours. You know, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, our Lord Jesus Christ said these words to us. He says, I came that they, that is My people, may have life and... Have it abundantly. You believe that? God has given us, you and me, abundant life now. The forgiveness of sins, the assurance of God's fatherly care, His purifying, cleansing power in our lives. He's given us the gift of the Blessed Spirit and of the church and of His inerrant Word. Oh, what abundant life is ours now! Nevertheless, when we set our eyes on Revelation 21 and 22 and observe uh, the future that awaits, we uh, can say, much like the Queen of Sheba did when she finally saw Solomon's riches, that the half was not told me. What yet awaits is even far better. An abundant, abundant life for the people of God truly. And so what I encourage you to do today, dear, dear friends, as we uh, consider this passage is to set your eyes upon the, the paradise of our God and be joyful in the generosity of our God in the future that awaits His redeemed people. Well, as we open up these verses together, I want us to do so under... Uh, three different headings. First of all, to consider the potentate of paradise. Uh, secondly, the provision of paradise. And then thirdly, the privileges of paradise. The potentate, the provision, and lastly, the privileges of paradise. Well, first of all, the, the potentate of paradise. Well, why did I use that word? Well, it begins with P. That's one reason. But the word potentate is one that, and this is a dif- the dictionary definition here, is one who wields great power or sway. Or the kids' dictionary says it this way, that it is a person who has controlling power. And so the potentate is the one who is in charge. Now, who is the potentate of God's new creation, of the paradise of God? Well, we're told in this passage, aren't we? It's certainly the one who is on the throne. For in the very middle of this city, the new Jerusalem, is described, verse 1, the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's who. And in fact, a little bit later in verse 3, we read the same thing. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. In the very middle of this new creation is the throne representing the kingly authority and the power and the majestic sovereignty of the one who rules and reigns in this place, and it is God and the Lamb. Now, you understand, God is sovereign in this world as well. Right? Uh, His sovereign will comes to pass. He made everything that there is. His providence directs all affairs. The Lord Jesus even now reigns as the glorified and ascended Savior. He is building His church. He is ordering all things for the good of His church. So the Lord is sovereign now, but now He rules in the midst of His enemies. And God's sovereign rule is a a truth that you and I as God's people, we cling to by faith. At times we, we look around us, and at times it seems like things are falling apart, and yet we know and we cling to it by faith, yet my God is in charge. The promise is, dear friends, when we come into this new heavens and new earth, there is coming a time when our faith is going to turn into sight. And God's sovereign throne is going to absolutely dominate this new creation. His rule will be unchallenged. His rule is what will produce the beauty and the blessings of this new world. Uh, He will be at the center of it all. And it's the throne, uh, not only here we're told of our good God, the One who by His grace has saved us, but it is the throne, uh, particularly, we are told, of this One who is the second person of the Godhead, the Lamb. And again, that language of the Lamb uh, reminds us that the One who is ruling in the new creation is the very One who loved Me and gave Himself for Me. The One who for My sake became incarnate and took the lowest place. The One who for My sake took nails in His hands on Calvary's tree. The One who who has been interceding for me, carrying my every need to the Father's throne. The One who has been personally united to me so that all of Christ's blessings also are mine. It is this Lamb, my Savior, yes, my Jesus, who is on the throne in glory. The Lamb is all the glory, we sang last week, of Emmanuel's land. And so, dear friends, if God, the triune God, and particularly the God-man, the Lamb, will dominate our vision in glory, should they not dominate our vision now? This is why, dear friends, our Christianity must always be a God-centered Christianity. Never a man-centered Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about how I can get my own needs met, my own felt needs, or about how I can feel inspired, or how I can feel lifted up, or how I can feel encouraged. Many of those things come as we believe. But dear friends, Christianity is first about God and about His glory and the glory of of the risen Redeemer. That's what it's about above all else. It's that... He would be glorified and that my life would be directed to Him to, uh, to magnify His name. Oh dear friends, He, the risen Savior, the triune God, is the potentate of paradise. In the very center of that new Jerusalem is His throne. Secondly, Secondly, the provision now of paradise. The provision of paradise. You look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, there, and reminder that this is imagery here, this is symbolic. But in the middle of this great city, this New Jerusalem, the picture is of a city. But in the middle of it is the best green space imaginable in any city. The city is a park, we're told. And it's a park with a beautiful, sparkling, Clean river running right down the middle of it, beginning at the throne of God, and then on either side of this river are trees that are yielding abundant fruit for us to enjoy. That's the imagery that we're given. Now, all of this imagery is symbolic of the most glorious truths of what it's going to be like for you and for me to be in this place. Let's just kind of walk our way through some of these things. Well, the first thing that we read there is of this river of the water of life. Verse 1. A river of the water of life that flows through Eden. Now, this imagery is is something that we find uh, throughout the Bible. In Eden. There was a river, quote, that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Genesis 2, verse 10. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel's vision of of an end time temple, of a future redeeming work of God, there in Ezekiel 47 we read of a river that issued from below the threshold of the temple. Or Psalm 46, 4. Luther's great psalm, it says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or in John 7, in verse 38, Jesus, in speaking about the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of believers, says, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Or John 4, in verse 10, Jesus speaking Uh, to the woman at the well in John 4, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so this water imagery is used throughout Scripture and it symbolizes life. True life from God. Eternal life. Salvation of full and free. That's what it represents. It's, It's all of the blessings of God's uh, salvation. And they come sovereignly from God. Here you'll notice it comes from the throne of God. And the blessing here is fellowship with God. Uh, So the river flowing from the throne of God is the gift of His sovereign grace. It's merited by the redeeming work of the Lamb and it flows abundantly to His people. And you and I experience this river now. We experience the life of salvation now. We have that Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, which is flowing rivers of living water in us. But, the promise is, all those blessings of salvation that you now experience, the blessings of life and joy and fellowship with God, will be experienced in even greater, more abundant measure in glory. It's a flowing, free-flowing river of God's mercy that runs through that place. The streams on earth I've tasted, we sang last week again, more deep I'll drink above. And so there is a river of the water of life, but then it goes on to speak of the tree of life. The tree of life, was found, of course, in the Garden of Eden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The theologian Gerhardus Voss says that that tree of life actually served a kind of sacramental purpose in the Garden of Eden. It was a a kind of sign and seal of their communion with God. And so the tree of life, which represented the near communion with God that, that Adam and Eve knew in Eden... Now finds a place once again in the new creation, but you notice it's no longer just a single tree. But rather, it's a tree of life that is on either side of the river. It's a whole row of trees. It's a whole park of trees. You look around, and what are you seeing? The tree of life. And it's a tree that we're told that is bearing a 12 kinds of fruit. A harvest every month. You know, I love New England. I love apple-picking season in New England. Megan graciously makes me an apple pie uh, every October, and I look forward to it all year. But the thing about apple season in New England is that it's only for a couple of weeks every once every year. It comes and then it goes, and you have to wait an entire year to get it again. And And the picture here is just the opposite. It's It's that of a of a never-ending abundance of fruit that is coming from these trees. That it doesn't come sporadically. It's not in fits and starts, but rather it's an abundance of life that we uh, we receive from the Lord. A continual supply of fruit which represents the superabundance of life and grace and joy. Life in full. All of the time for the citizens of this city. But then it goes on to describe the end of verse 2 the leaves of this tree of life. And it says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You may recall last week at the end of verse 21 how it spoke or at the end of chapter 21 excuse me how it spoke there of the nations who will walk in this new creation by the light of God, the kings of the earth who will bring their glory into it. The picture of uh, this new creation being a, a wonderfully diverse place filled with uh, the various peoples and language groups and cultures of this world, all inhabiting uh, this glorified uh, city. And now it is saying that this a tree of life is what will bring healing, continual healing to all the nations that walk in this place. wonderful promise this is when we consider uh, the the significant um, uh, uh, difficulties and troubles that come from living in this world, the consequences of our own sin that we face, the consequences of other people's sin, the warfare that marks so many parts of our globe, The trauma and the abuse that people experience. The the evils of, of discrimination and of injustice. The ways that people lie and manipulate one another and hurt one another in awful ways. There is a tremendous amount of hurt. We often come through this life battered and beaten and torn. Sometimes we feel like we're barely surviving from one day to the next or one week Uh, to the next. But here is a promise that when we come into the new creation that here there is going to be a kind of perfect healing. That none of the pain and the grief and the illness, the disordered lives uh, that we experience in this life, none of those things will be carried with us into the new creation, but rather the nations will know complete healing from the hand of God. It will be a place, dear friends, of complete and of superabundant blessing. All of this imagery is pointing to that of complete and superabundant blessing from the hand of God. It can all be summarized in that little phrase at the beginning of verse 3 when it says that there will no longer be anything accursed in that place. Wow. All the things that Mark this life, and all of its cursiveness. You know, all of the things that you fear are going to happen tomorrow. Whether it be that you fear that you're going to get a bad grade. Or you fear that your child is going to become rebellious. That you fear that a friend is going to turn on you. Or a spouse is going to leave you. Or that you are going to get a dreadful diagnosis from the doctor. Or that a world war is going to take place? Now I ask you, do you feel anxiety about the next bad thing? Well, these things happen in a world that is cursed. That is under sin. And the answer of the Bible is, first of all, that we need not be anxious and fear these things because God is in control even now. He is working out His saving purposes in this world If you belong to Him, He has you in the grip of His hand and He is not going to let you go from that place. But I also have more good news for you. And that is that He is soon going to be bringing you into a world forever and ever where there is no more curse at all. A perfect land with nothing to make you afraid. With nothing that can hurt you. A land of righteousness and beauty and delight. That's the land that He promises for all of His children. A land in which we will know Him and serve Him without fear forever. A world without a curse. And how is that world ours? Well, it is of course ours because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. The One who became a curse for us and suffered on Calvary's tree undergoing the terrors of hell, we might experience an eternity in His presence without a curse uh, anymore. Those are, dear friends, the provisions of paradise. What provisions they are for the people of God. But now, thirdly and finally, I want us to consider the privileges of paradise. The privileges of paradise. What are the things that belong to us as the people of God? What are our privileges? And our passage lists four things that it says about us, His redeemed people in that place. And the first of those four things we see in verse 3. After telling us that the throne of God and of the Lamb are going to be in that place, then it goes on to say, and His servants will worship Him. His servants, that's you and me, all the redeemed people in that place, what are we going to be engaged in? We are going to be there worshiping Him. I asked this question a few weeks ago. The question was, what is it that you are made for? Sometimes we uh, participate in a particular thing maybe it's a particular sport or maybe it's gardening or maybe it's cooking or whatever it is that you really enjoy and you kind of have this deep sense you know i was made for this god gave me these abilities to do this there's a sense of truth about that the lord gives us a variety of wonderful gifts and of things to enjoy doing in this world but you weren't chiefly made for sports or for gardening or for cooking the reason that the Lord chiefly made you was that you would find your absolute delight in worshiping and serving Him, the God who made you. That's why you are here. And that's why, in the world around us, people have this sort of inbuilt sense that they need to be worshiping something. And people worship created things all of the time, whether it be power or pleasure or fame or money or false idols of this world. But you know, the reason that the Lord has really made us and where we find our greatest joy and satisfaction is in worshiping the God who made us and made us for Himself. And so it's in worship that we find our greatest delight. And I trust that if you are a child of God, you know something of this. You've had moments in the the public worship of God where, where you say, yes, Lord, this is why I'm here. It's for this. Sometimes in this life, those moments kind of seem scattered and far between, isn't it? Our own sin gets in the way. Our own distractedness gets in the way. Our own fleeting thoughts and ungodly feelings. The promise is, dear friends, that you and I are soon going to be in a place where those distracted thoughts and those fleeting feelings are going to be gone, and instead we're going to know an unceasing joy And delight in doing the very thing for which we were made, which is to bring honor and glory to our God. We're gonna worship Him. We're gonna serve Him. We're gonna be involved in tasks in this renewed cosmos. uh, We're gonna cultivate and we're uh, gonna, the place in which we live, we're gonna do it all to His glory. And in everything that we do, we're gonna find our chief delight, not in serving ourselves, but in serving Him and we are going to sing to Him, and we are going to be in His presence, and we are going to hear His voice, and we're going to find the highest delight ever in doing these things. We're going to worship Him, the One for whom we were uh, created. Lost in wonder, love, and praise, as the hymn says. Well, if that's one thing, that one of the privileges is that his servants will worship him. The second privilege is this. It is that these, his servants, will, there it is in verse 4, they will see his face. They will see his face. Remember, that's what Moses wanted to do. He desired to see God in his glory. He was unable to. He was instead hidden in the cleft of the rock while God's back parts passed by. The priests had some sense of seeing the glory of God when they that high priest entered into the Holy of Holies once a year after sacrifices. He had, he had some sense in that place of the, of the glory of God that overwhelmed him. But, but dear friends, here in glory, you and I are going to experience what Uh, Moses was unable to. What the priests only experienced in part, we in this place are told that we are going to behold Him. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. What does this mean entirely? To be in His presence and to behold His his face? I think it's going to have something to do with the immediacy of His presence, the sense of it that we're going to have the nearness of God, a way that we can't describe now. We will behold there the risen and ascended Lord Jesus who even now has a glorified body. And we're going to know God and be with Him in a way that you and I have not yet been an immediacy to it, of, of our fellowship with Him. First John describes it this way, doesn't he? In First John 3.2 that Beloved, even now we are children of God. has not yet appeared what we shall be. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For, why, we shall see Him as He is. We are now the children of God. But the glory that awaits the dearly beloved children is that they will behold their Father face to face in glory. What theologians in the past have called the beatific vision. The vision of of God in unspeakable splendor and light. And that's the image that we're given here, isn't it, in verse 5? That night will be no more. We're not going to need a light of the lamp or of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God, whom we are beholding face to face in this place, will be our our light. How can we say more than, than this? So, friends, to experience this in all of its glory. What it, what it will be to, to finally behold our God face face. Thirdly, what's the privileges of the people of God? The third privilege is this. It is at the end of verse 4. His name will be on their foreheads. Earlier in Revelation, we read of the mark of the beast. That mark which uh, is on all of those who are not redeemed expressing a loyalty to the Antichrist and a loyalty to Satan. Earlier in the book of Revelation 2, chapter 7 and verse 3, we read of the sealing of God's people. That God knows who are His and He seals them, which gives them security. The identity of God's people as we walk through this pilgrim life. Well, here the the notion is, is that you and I who have been sealed already in this life and given the Holy Spirit and marked out as the children of God, that you and I, when we enter glory, are going to be so marked out as His people that we will have the very name of God Himself written on our foreheads. Revelation 3 and verse 12, the the letter to the church in Philadelphia said the same thing that... Uh, uh, that uh, uh, to the one who conquers, that the Lord will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. We will be marked by the name of the Lord. That mark, uh, the, the idea is that of ownership, that, that we will be known to be his. He will have marked us as His own, and there's a beautiful truth in that. It means that you and I are not going to be lost in the crowd. It's not like a, one of those, you know, giant crowds walking into a sports stadium, and, and sometimes, you know, you just kind of going along with with everybody else. But you're, you're just one among this this mass of people. The people at the ticket counter want to count you as an individual. You know, you get in, you have to have your ticket, right? But this is the idea here that in the, in the mass of this, this incredibly huge fullness of, of, of redeemed humanity that will inhabit this new heavens and new earth, nonetheless, each one of us is going to be known and marked out by God. Not lost in the crowd. Intimately known by Him and loved by Him for all eternity. But it's not just the, the mark of ownership, it's also the mark of His character. That is, if we, are, if we are marked by His name, it means also that we will increasingly take on the character of who our, our God is, transformed into His likeness, bearing the image of the glorified Christ. That's the promise, is that you and I Will in this place have his name on our foreheads. But now, fourthly, what is the fourth privilege of the people of God? It is found at the very end of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. Again, we have a reflection of Genesis 1. When God created mankind, he gave them dominion over the rest of his creation. Did he not? And the promise is here that you and I will take our place as the head of this new creation, ruling forever as God's vice-regent for His glory forever and ever. Again, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, the letter to the church in Laodicea said this, that the one who conquers I will grant Him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. You and I will be in a position alongside the Lord Jesus Christ of authority in this new place. It's a mind-boggling thought. What does that mean in all of its particulars? I don't know exactly. I know it's going to be a glorious a glorious uh, habitation. What privileges are ours as the people of God? The privileges of paradise. We've seen the potentate of paradise. Right. Secondly, we've seen the provision of paradise. Third, the privileges of paradise. Let me just make finally a couple of brief points of application. The first of these is this. Dear believer, with such a future ahead of you, do not be afraid of dying. Dear believer, with such a future ahead of you, do not be afraid of dying. You know, the Bible says that it is appointed for all men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Unless Jesus Christ returns first, there is going to come a time when either by a sudden death, like a car accident through which our friend Harry Reader in Alabama was brought into glory this past week, or on a hospital bed somewhere, or on your own bed somewhere, suffering from the effects of very old age, by one of these means, there is going to come a time when you are going to be near death and a time when you will die. And I want to encourage you, dear believer in heaven, at such a time, believe the promises of God. Believe the future that awaits. And be joyful even in the face of death. We need not fear death. Don't allow death to be that that great barrier that that looms continually over your your head and, and you're afraid to think about the future because you don't want to Give any thought to the fact that you're soon going to die, friends. We are going to die soon enough. But then, for us, it is an entrance to glory into the presence of our Savior, and then when He returns, glory unspeakable, glory forever. Can you be like one of those saints of old who were able to look look at death in the face, and like 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 Stephen, even on that that martyr's Stake in Acts chapter seven. He was able to see. Yes, he even beholds the Lord Jesus there standing, waiting for him. Can we have a similar vision of the future that awaits us, dear believer? Do not be afraid of dying. But then, secondly, secondly, this by way of application, dear believer, with such a future as this, truly live now, dear believer. With such a future as this, truly live now. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that this glorious future that awaits us gives significance and meaning to everything that we do now. Grace is the preparation for glory. The Puritans used to like to speak of this life as little glory. That's what we're in now. We know the Savior. We can live for Him. We know the riches of His promises and of His Word and of the fellowship with His people. Friends, truly live in these things now for the things that matter. You see, you see if like the world, you think that you simply die and then there's nothing. That makes all of this utterly insignificant. If, there, if, you, if you live and then you die and there is nothing this life is merely a blip on the screen that's here today and then it's gone, lost forever. In the grand scheme of this this crazy thing called this world, if there is no God, this life is but a merely blip that exists for a little while and then is gone. And we're nothing but little blips on the grand scale of, of a huge universe and we are insignificant in every way. Absolutely insignificant in every way. None of this means anything at all if there is no God. Dear friends, if you know, as the Bible tells you, that God made you and He made you for Himself, and when you fell into sin, that He by His sovereign grace redeemed you so that you can know Him not only for this life but for eternity. It gives absolute meaning to everything that we do now, and it gives us a reason to wake up tomorrow and to go on living for Him. Will you do this with hope, with joy that you live in your father's world and that you're headed for the grand consummation of all things? Oh, friends, truly live and live for him even now in light of this future. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for, oh, we thank you, Lord, for this glorious future that was not ours by our own merit. We have merited death and judgment in hell. But is ours by your free grace. Paradise regained because of your love and mercy. Lord, give us believing hearts even now. Help us to remember that future to which we are going. and Give us courage in this life and in the face of death. Oh Lord, that you would be glorified in it all. Bless us and keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to sing.